0: On this week's edition of New York Now, a new judge on the state's highest court, we catch up with Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, our panel breaks down the news of the week and an update on alcohol to go in New York's farms. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now.
1: Today, the Senate Majority will pass legislation I will fight like hell for you to every to single stop. day. Like oh. I've always oh. done
0: and always feel to another stand. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. We're starting the show with something that very few people cared about this week, but was actually a really big deal. New York's highest state court, called the Court of Appeals, got a new judge this week. Judge Shirley Troutman was confirmed by the state Senate. She comes from a middle-tier court in western New York and is the second black woman to serve on the Court of Appeals in its history. Just for context, the Court of Appeals is basically New York's version of the U.S. Supreme Court and it has a lot of power. Like in 2004, the court banned the death penalty in New York. And a year before that, another decision forced the state to put more funding into schools. So it's a big deal. I asked Traumann what it meant to her right after she was confirmed.
1: I began my career at Albany Law School and to come back here and to be a member of the Court of Appeals and join our chief, Judge Janet DiFiore, and my now colleagues on that court is a day I never imagined was possible.
0: And with Troutman on the bench, the court is now full and she'll hear her first case next month. In the meantime, let's get into the rest of the week's news with our panel. Kate Lisa is from Johnson Newspapers and Keisha Kluke is from Bloomberg Government. Thank you both for being here. Thank Thanks you for cool. having us. I'll be honest, it wasn't that big of a week in terms of the week's news, but something really big kind of happened. So. Redistricting is going on in New York right now. When we talk about redistricting, we're talking about drawing new districts in terms of the Senate, the Assembly, and Congress. This happens every 10 years based on the census. Our population growth is not great in New York, as we all know, so now this independent redistricting, let's count how many times I mispronounced that, (laughs) redistricting commission is drawing these new lines. It drew them, it couldn't come to an agreement, as we've told you on the show here before, they put them to the legislature this week. The legislature said, no, go back to the drawing board. We don't, we're not going to go with those maps. Keisha, I don't really understand the process, which I'm hoping that you can explain. So we're in this part of the process. The legislature has rejected the four sets of maps that have gone before them. What's next?
2: Mm-hmm. And, and just to know that this is the first time this has ever been done in the state. So. Yeah no one knows what's going on, and it's just based on the constitutional language, which is pretty vague. So um, it's kind of interesting. So they sent the Democratic set of maps and the Republican set of maps, and um, actually both of them got voted down almost unanimously, which is pretty surprising. Um, And so they're basically sending them back to this commission, which... Has not agreed on anything in its entire existence, <laughs> and they're giving them. Technically, they have 15 days to come up with hopefully one set of maps. 15 days. 15 days. They've but, had four
0: months to do it. How are they
2: but they do technically. The Constitution gives them till February 28th at the latest. So there's kind of some wiggle room. So they might have more time. Now the commission's been really mum on it so far. We haven't heard whether they're even gonna come together. So I'm not sure what's gonna happen with that. Um, The problem if it runs in the long end towards February is that petitioning for those seats starts in March and people Mm. wouldn't know what seats to petition for. So it's really important that the legislature keeps this process moving Um, in the end. If the um, if they send if they do get maps and maybe one set or two set, whatever it is, um, they'll send it to the legislature. they'll vote on it. If they vote um, for it, those are the maps. If they vote against it, then the legislature gets to draw its maps. And again, the legislature has a super majority of Democrats. We also have a Democratic governor, so the thought is that the Democrats would benefit in this process.
0: This feels so silly to me. I don't know It's very quintessential New York for us to have this independent commission and then to stonewall because uh, half the commission is republican appointed half the commission is democrat appointed uh so in this case you're saying that the legislature in the end if they really can't agree on anything and the legislature votes down the maybe new maps that they come up with then the legislature could just draw the lines mm-hmm. so what do they how do they do that do they just base it on whatever they want or how do they come together on that?
2: So I believe that they can use some of the information from the commission, because they've collected a lot of data, they've had a lot of public hearings across the state. Um, so I think that they can use that, but the legislature actually has its own committee, for which has, been continuing regardless of the independent commission. Oh great. So they have someone who's like at the ready, knows how to do this, has the software and can draw the maps. Um, typically in the past, when the legislatures drawn the maps, the congressional maps have gone to the courts because mm. the state lawmakers really care more about the state lines than the congressional. So it'll be kind of interesting, but we're this year, we're running into the June primary. So if this process isn't done in time, like I said, there won't be seats to run for um, and this could be just a mess. So we'll see what happens with it. feels
0: like already a mess. It
2: already is a mess <laughs> a little bit, yeah.
0: <laughs> Speaking of uh, messes, the state budget is never all that clean. Kate, I wanna go to you. the The state budget, the state budget season is starting next week when governor kathy Hokel gives her maybe state budget address it's friday morning and we don't know what she's doing in terms of that whether it's going to be just a document she releases or a speech uh, what are you looking out for in the state budget it's always this huge thing i should mention to people it's not just spending that we're talking about here lawmakers usually put really controversial items into the state budget when it passes at the end of march if it passes at the end of March. Kate, what are you looking for?
3: Sure, so um, the governor had more than 230 proposals in her state of the state, and they were kind of vague a little bit, right? Right. Yeah. Like the details are missing, uh, largely, so I think that's, everybody's kind of excited to see what the budget will have on all these different issues um, that she, she brought up. Like, uh, she talked about a lot of different investment in the healthcare workforce, for small businesses, um, you know, as, as they're still building after the COVID pandemic and, and the fallout, um, I think that I think everyone's going to be very excited to see what she proposes or like the details of where the governor is prioritizing childcare and yes. uh, funding for that, because that's going to be I think a big sticking point between legislative leaders. So that'll be interesting to to get that conversation moving a little bit. Um, and I, I think some affordable housing um, details would be, would be good, too. So it's a lot, you're right, to unpack, and it'll be interesting on Tuesday to see what she has to say.
0: Definitely housing, because the eviction moratorium, the state's eviction moratorium, is ending this weekend. So the governor has said, let's invest in affordable housing because this is ending. I think there might be need to be a bridge between those two things at some point so i guess we'll see that's a really good point Um, she said she wanted a five-year housing plan i believe something like that i'm not Mm remembering correctly from state of the state keisha what are you looking for in this you know there we could talk about this for hours the budget Mm -hmm. is packed with so many different things so what's on your mind
2: um a lot of the similar issues the affordable housing of course um there's some tax abatements in new york city for affordable housing um builders that uh, for decades have um, been, they've tried to rework them, they've tried to rework them in every budget. Um, and Kathy Hochul is actually saying, let's get rid of them and sort of start a new program, the, the 421A tax abatement. Um, and so that's something that we'll be watching for is the details, because she didn't really put in what she would want instead of that or how she would reform that program um and also climate change um mm. the state uh climate action council came out with its draft proposal in uh, the beginning of this month end of last month and um it's gonna require 10 million dollars is the estimate to get the state to meet its um emission goals and um environmentalists are saying they need an additional five. So 15 billion, Um, I don't know where that comes from. And at the same time, Hochul has said that she wants to put money towards the rainy day fund and not just keep spending because at some point that federal aid will end. So Uh, we're gonna be looking at just a host of issues.
0: You know, Kate, 30 seconds, this new dynamic between Hochul and the legislature, we have a new governor, what do you think of it? going into budget season. Sure, yeah.
3: Um I think I think it's hopefully promising that we'll have more conversation, like maybe there will be some collaboration between them um since that's that's what it sounds like, I guess at least anecdotally that Hokul does kind of engage with um lawmakers, so I'm guessing I would hope that the negotiations would be um I'm, I don't know, maybe maybe even we can hope for a little bit more forthcoming details than they I, have been public with in the, in the past we can dream.
0: I we? hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hope springs eternal. We <laughs> will leave it there. It's going to be a long road ahead. Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers, Keisha Klucke from Bloomberg Government, thank you both so much.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: All right. So also this week, Democrats in the state Senate passed a package of new voting bills. Among them are measures that would allow voter registration within 10 days of an election drop off an absentee ballot instead of mailing it, and a lot more. Those bills would still have to pass the assembly to become law, but Democrats say they're confident they'll strike a deal. Senate Elections Chair Zellner Myrie. Ultimately, for the vast majority of things that we pass, come to an accord with the House uh, and ultimately get it on the governor's desk. I have no reason to believe that it won't be the same with these, but we look forward to engaging uh, our colleagues and supporting them in their efforts uh, to reform our election system as well. And voting reform is just one of a whole bunch of issues that Democrats hope to address this year. They still control both chambers of the state legislature by pretty wide margins. So getting stuff through isn't all that hard as long as they can agree on it. And there's a lot on their plates for the next six months. For a preview, I spoke this week with Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, a Democrat from Westchester. Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, thank you so much for being here.
1: It's always good to be here. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year to you, too. So it is a new session. It's a new year. You passed some voting reforms this week. I know that you have a big agenda for the week in the Senate in terms of the Democrats, who still control the Senate. Can you tell me what's on that list? What are you looking forward to in terms of tackling in this legislative session? I know the list is long and you have a lot to get to in a very short amount of time.
1: Well, that's only because you know how much we get done in any given year. We we are really very, very proud of the amount of work we do on behalf of the people of New York. But I will just briefly stop and say you're right. We did start with voting. We always start, since we've taken the majority in 2019, we always start with voting. Because we always want to pay homage to the people who sent us here, and they sent us here through the power of their voice and the power of their vote. We really do take that seriously. And then, of course, as we go on, you know, the the governor gave her State of the State. She will be presenting her budget next week. So obviously, we'll be very much focused on building the economy here in New York, which we also know depends so much on us being able to finally tackle this COVID uh, pandemic. And uh, we are hoping obviously that we will be peaking uh, as it relates to this surge uh, sooner than later after the holidays. But again, we have to be sensible and we do have to make sure we take advantage of the tools that we have. It'll make sure that people are able to get back to work our kids are in school. We're able to continue, again, to, to build the economy and do the things that, that New Yorkers wanna do.
0: So COVID, it, you're right, it really is top of mind for everybody, including those in the legislature. The governor's been in office for about five months now. She took office in August. What do you think of her response to COVID? Some have been critical because of this big wave of Omicron that we have, a really big infection rates and hospitalizations. What do you think of the governor's COVID-19 response as of now?
1: No, I appreciate the fact that she's responding uh, as the issues present themselves. Whether in nursing home, whether it's hospital, and again, she continues to to champion uh, the use of the tools we have, including again the vaccines, the boosters. Uh, she has made sure that the state has provided county government as well as local governments with masks and test kits as they become available. You know, I certainly don't have a criticism of the governor as it relates to how she is handling this. I do believe that if we just pay attention to, you know, all of our health, we will be able to get past this.
0: You know, there's a conflict right now between, uh, there's two sides of this in terms of schools I want to talk about with you. So some people think that schools should go full remote again, given the the recent surge. Others think that they should stay in person, because as you and I both know, that in-person instruction is really important for students, both for socialization and just learning in general. It's just better for them. What do you think about that? Should schools stay in person right now, given the surge, or would you like to see any kind of shift to remote?
1: You know, I, I always, certainly what we've learned from COVID is that if you have remote options, it's good. Uh, I, that's just a fact. I don't argue, however, with the premise that children are best off in school. They are best off, uh, you know, being able to have some sort of routine. And again, we've seen that many uh, places do not have the the internet access and the learning gaps, uh, especially around uh, communities, of color, poor communities, and so on and so forth. You know, are really things that you are not going to get back. So I understand why people are trying to keep schools open and and kids in school. So. You know, there's not a one-size-fits-all, clearly. I'm always looking at data. I'm always looking at the science. I believe that the people who are in charge of these things are too. And, you know, we have flexibility. I'm sure that we will use it as it is required. But listen, to the extent that we can keep schools open and safe, which is obviously, uh, you know, the the underpinning of all, that we can keep schools open and safe, we, we ought to do it.
0: You know speaking of data, we have some data now on pretrial arrests just to shift to a very different topic. <laughs> so well, you know
1: what they're related Dan, they, they are related because that's why we focus so much on education because what they tell you is that the the, the likelihood of you you know being in a bad situation uh, is uh, generally linked to whether or not you've been able to get an education. So it is a sad segue but <laughs> it is a real, in reality connected.
0: So in terms of crime, we do see this spike in New York. We see a crime, uh, crime spike nationwide. You said last week after the governor stated of the state that there's no appetite right now in your conference to change the state's bail reform laws again. They were uh, implemented in um, 2020 and then changed in 2021. So I know that Republicans are going to use this as a talking point throughout the legislative session. If not changing bail reform, do you, has your conference discussed any ideas on how to address that spike in crime? It's something that I know is on the minds of New York. And something that's important to everybody.
1: Well, what I'd like to do, Dan, is to de-link the spike in crime with bail reform, because, as you said, you know, the spike in crime is national, and our bail reform laws are certainly not responsible for a spike in crime across the country we did this reform not because we woke up one morning and decided it was a good thing to do and uh, we did a let's do b we did it because it has long been recorded that there has been an extreme disparity in the treatment of people in the criminal justice system who are poor who are black who are brown and part of what we saw is that this disparate treatment happened uh, largely around bail where you had again the Khalif browders of the world somebody accused of stealing a backpack stuck in jail for uh you know years uh, ultimately taking such a toll on his mental health that he he committed suicide uh because he didn't have enough money to get out on bail we don't want to criminalize poverty the reality is that as i said i like data the data has started to come in and they are saying that 98% of the people who are out without bail are not committing a, a, another violent crime. So that's 98%. And I can't tell you, frankly, how many before we did bail reform came out, even after they paid bail and did you know, something horrible. But I can tell you that when you hold somebody who's poor in jail because they've been suspected of again, quote, stealing a backpack, uh, they lose their jobs, they lose their housing. So much is lost in the intervening time. And again, going back to education, bolstering our educational opportunities. We've decided as of last year that we're making universal pre-K universal, not just a New York City thing, because we understand it's important that young people from the the you know from the beginning have a a a a serious foundation that will allow them to learn and to to really you know be able to contribute what they should be able to contribute if there is a society that is embracing their potential at the beginning i'm not unwilling to listen to to uh any conversations about anything going forward but i want to make sure that we de-link uh crime and bail reform that we look at the data as it relates to bail reform, that we fight crime because uh, we all want to see crime uh, go down. Uh, But we also focus on making sure that the communities have support so that uh, hopefully this whole conversation about criminality will be one that we don't have to pay that much attention to.
0: All right. Well, we will be watching to see how it plays out. It's going to be a really fun year, so we'll be watching.
1: (laughs) Every year has been a fun year, somehow (laughs) or another, right?
0: Exactly. Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And we'll have an extended edition of that interview up on our website. As always, that's at nynow.org. Now turning to some other news, Governor Kathy Hochul says she supports the return of alcohol to go. Reporter Daryl Camp is here with more, Daryl.
4: That's right, Dan. Alcohol to go is one of several issues that lawmakers left behind when they left Albany last year. It was put in place during the pandemic, but expired in June. It allowed restaurants to sell mixed drinks for customers to take home or to have delivered to them. During her state of the state address last week, Governor Kathy Hochul voiced her support of that measure.
2: We're also going to do something our bars and restaurants have been asking for, to once again allow the sale of to-go drinks, a critical revenue stream during the lean times last year.
4: Restaurants have continued to struggle as the pandemic continues, partly because people still aren't going out to eat like they did pre-COVID. Relief funds to help restaurants were made available early on, but many say it wasn't enough to cover their costs. Albany area restaurant owner, Dominic Pernomo, says having another way to make money would make a huge difference. As we are now going into year three uh, of COVID, um, restaurants continue to be battered um, as as an industry as a whole. Um, So having this lifeline uh, allows restaurants to, to continue to bring in another revenue stream. Liquor stores have been opposed to that measure from the very beginning, saying fewer people would buy from them if they could get alcohol to go but lawmakers also had other concerns last year. Assemblymember Pat Fahey sponsors a bill that would bring back alcohol to go.
3: That is not the case. The regulations have been very tightened up on this, that that drink has to be sealed until the order, the food order is delivered and you can only order those drinks tied to food.
4: So during the pandemic, alcohol to go was allowed for restaurants, but also craft brewers and distillers. Hokel's proposal would only apply to restaurants, leaving those other businesses out. John Curtin, who owns Albany Distilling Company, says it would help if the state allowed them to ship directly to the consumer. Right now, that's not the case.
0: Right, the, the state regulates what we can do within the borders of New York, but when it comes to interstate commerce, it's, it's all over the board. So, for example, I can sell to a retailer in California and they could ship back to my neighbor here in Albany. Um, So it's just adding an extra layer of of complication um, and not really
4: accomplishing anything. With more awareness of the issue earlier in this year's session, advocates are feeling optimistic about the chances of alcohol to go passing before the end of session. All right,
0: thanks Daryl. something to look out for. And something else we're tracking for you is the future of New York's farms. The state is considering dropping the overtime threshold for farm workers from 60 hours down to 40 hours. That's up to a state wage board convened by the Department of Labor. You'll remember we went deep into that issue during our Future of Work series here on New York Now. And now the Wage Board has started its work on the issue, holding the first of three public hearings on the question. Take a look. It's round two for New York's farms. The state will soon decide if farm workers should now be paid overtime at 40 hours instead of the current 60 hours. The same question came up last year, but a Wage Board convened by the state kicked the can down the road until now. State Labor Commissioner, Roberta Reardon. As you receive public testimony, you are encouraged to take heed and understand the lessons learned in the past year as farmers and farm laborers have been forced to adapt to the unpredictability of the COVID-19 pandemic. It boils down to one question. Is lowering the overtime threshold for farm workers the right thing to do? And could farms pay for it if that happens? John Dickinson, a dairy farmer who chairs the Northeast Dairy Producers Association, said that even post-pandemic, the added cost would be unsustainable. To change it to 40 would be a cultural change. and, I, and I don't, not, No business can afford to pay overtime on a third of their employee hours. No
1: business, regardless of what kind of industry it is.
0: But workers who testified before the wage board were mixed on the change. Farmers against a lower overtime threshold have said they'd have to cap hours at 40 a week to avoid the new cost. That's bad news for workers who want as many hours as possible, like a lot of seasonal staff. But other workers say it would be a huge relief. Carlos Cardona has worked on a dairy farm in New York for the last 11 years.
1: 5 a.m. I leave to work and I come back after six. I only spent half an hour, an hour and a half with my kids. Back to rest to get up in the morning next day.
0: And while most farmers who testified were against the change, some came out in support. Todd Cavallo makes wine and cider in the Hudson Valley, and he says that farm workers deserve the same overtime standards as everyone else. There is no other industry in New York that sets overtime at 60 hours. I know that we can figure this out, and I think that everyone should be able to operate in a way that is um, fair to them and is fair to the workers uh, in New York state. For a lot of farmers, it's not that simple. The price of some goods, like milk, is set by the government, so it's tough to grow revenue. Mike McMahon is a dairy farmer from Cortland County. His workers produce 22 million pounds of milk every year. And he said that he's afraid he'll lose workers if he can't afford to pay them more in overtime. Many of our employees are long-term and loyal but they are here to make money. And if their earnings decrease because we must reduce their hours to control costs, they will seek greener pastures in other states. There's also the option of a phase-in, meaning the overtime threshold would go down, but over a number of years. Laura Colligan, a vegetable farmer from Erie County, said that would help farmers adapt to the new cost while handing workers new rights over time.
2: I'd support bringing the overtime threshold for farm work down to 40 hours per week, But I'd urge the Wage Board to do so more gradually, slowly bringing the threshold down from 60 to 40 hours in multiple steps and with ample warning.
0: And the Wage Board has two more virtual hearings scheduled. They're both next week. We'll have the details online. But until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.
4: Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.